everyone hello so i need to be honest about more of what is happening in church but i will be positive about the negative in other words i'm going to speak kindly about the church even though there are um, concerns. I'm not gloating. I'm not bragging. I'm not making anything glamorous. There's no glitz to this. This is a purely empathy-centered conversation. And my goal is to always uplift the church, um, never to destroy it, Never to bully church, never to tell anybody, never go to church because I'm not that type of person. I would never tell anybody to do what's outside their nature. For example, if church is a part of your nature, then I'm glad that church compliments your nature so I would tell you to go to church because that's a part of who you are and what you are I don't try to make anybody a clone of me because I'm not an autocrat by nature I don't have a dictator's heart innately so this is me Um, also being very sensitive to the fact that, as you know, I have been real with myself and I said, well, there are churches out here that have the love that I need to give to me. I decided to think about the fact that there are churches out here that are capable and able and willing to give me the agape love I need, um, the enduring love that I need, the playful love that I need, the familiar love I need, the affectionate love that I need, and they're able to complement my self-love. And there are churches out here that are able to give me boundless empathy, unconditional love, compassionate love, sacrificial love, And even companionate love. So that's why I'll I'll never completely stay away from church. Because I had to recognize that there are plenty of people in the church who are hungry for me. They're thirsty for me. When I say hungry and thirsty, they're like, I want to bless Antonio so bad. God, send him to me, please. I want to give him the family love he never had. I want to be a part of his team where he doesn't have to make decisions on his own anymore. He doesn't have to 
make big decisions alone anymore. I want to, you know, help him psychologically and emotionally, spiritually, financially, intellectually, environmentally, culturally. So I do want to say that there will be times where I'll be visiting churches. Um, because there are people in the church world who are who are so determined. I'm gonna make sure Antonio is never without social justice again. I'm gonna make sure he's never without racial justice again. I'm gonna make sure he's never without economic justice again. I'm gonna make sure he's never without political liberation ever again. I'm gonna make sure that when it comes to his holidays and birthdays of, you know, Antonio's life, I'll be there and make sure that it's the best night and day of his life. And I'm gonna make sure that he has endless housing opportunities, endless medical care opportunities, and, um, you know, endless entrepreneurial employment opportunities. I'm going to make sure he has endless education opportunities. Because I know he was robbed of educational justice and that will never happen to him again. So there are plenty of people in church who feel that way about me. So... I can honestly say that my being an agnostic Christian... And a secular Jesus follower would not offend them because I can say, hey, um, I practice agnostic Christianity, Christian agnosticism, and follow Jesus not religiously because I do acknowledge that there are aspects of the concept of God and just God overall that I'll never fully understand. And at the same time, the good Samaritan that I call Jesus, even though I know he's a Jew, I love the joyfulness that he provided for my grandmother. And he provided me that same joyfulness myself. Because my grandma lived through legal segregation. Jesus was all she had. I lived through organized crime and Jesus was all I had. So we have that shared faith is pretty much what was it for us because we were also dealing with immeasurable compound traumas at young ages, and we're both black. So without further ado, let me continue. This is GravityLeadership.com by Matt Teeve on June 23rd, 2022. Why people leave the church. I'm not generalizing 
Not everybody's left the church, obviously. It says, do you have to go to church to be a Christian? Well, I would say this. It's better to be the church than to go to church. So if you are the church everywhere you go, the building that's called church is optional. So some Christians feel like going to church is one of the tenets of their relationship with God, which is beautiful. And some Christians feel like that's not where I experience God, so I don't go. That's beautiful, too. And some are like a hybrid. Eh, I don't go all the time, but when the Spirit moves me, I go. And that's just as beautiful. So it says, um, how many people attend your church? Hmm. Well... I I understand the question, but more importantly, is your church an environment of spiritual meat is a much better question to ask, in my opinion. Let's keep going. This question, which comes up in casual conversations for both clergy and lay people, is becoming more and more difficult to answer. Well, I think it's because Many people fixate on trying to equate church excellence with it has to be of this it has to be the same amount of people within secular stadiums, secular fields, secular arenas. And I say no, because church excellence is based on its quality, meaning I don't care about them being imperfect because you know no one is perfect as we know but they're imperfect like we all are but they have a infectious genuineness towards God that you just can't help but to appreciate That's true church excellence. That's true church quality. I'm not even talking about church quantity. It says, The COVID-19 pandemic pushed many church services online. And as more and more churches have started to worship in person once again, some people haven't come back. Well, I remember I did attend church briefly February 20th, February 27th, 2022 is at the Waterfront Church in D.C. So I know what it's like to come back to church when in the pandemic. And um, why did I leave? Well, I started to understand. No diss on Waterfront Church. I don't think Waterfront will sue me what I'm about to say. I said, well, I had to step away from church to get a better understanding of why I went 
all those years, even when I was nine, trying to understand what, you know, my grandma and her influence in me going to church and being a Christian at the time. And I started noticing that in church there were things that I've been concerned about. Like, for example, there is in a handful of churches in the world, there is a history of pulpits, um, choir lofts, and pews living double lives within the nightlife. Like you got in a handful of churches you got pews you got pews, pulpits, and choir laws who denounce pubs but double life in pubs denounce bars double life in bars denounce nightclubs double life in nightclubs denounce parties double life in parties denounce live music double life in live in live music denounce concerts double life at concerts denounce cabarets double life at cabarets denounce theater Double life at theaters. Their theaters denounce cinemas. Double life at cinemas. Denounce shows. Double life at shows. Denounce night owls, but they are night owls. Denounce nightlife entertainment, but they enjoy nightlife entertainment. Um, denounce strip clubs, but they double life at strip clubs. Denounce brothels, they double life at brothels. Denounce crack houses, they double life at crack houses. Denounce weed spots, but they double life at weed spots. Denounce picking up sex workers to have paid sex with them at public parks, but they but they pay for prostitution services at public parks. And then they, for example, they denounce LGBTQ plus culture, but they are double living LGBTQ plus culture. For example, they denounce gay villages, gayborhoods, drag shows, pride parades, pride flags, rainbow flags, but they live double lives. In gay villages, neighborhoods, drag shows, pride parades, pride flags, and rainbow flags. They denounce transgender bathrooms. But they use transgender bathrooms. They denounce transgenderism, but they are living double lives as transgendered people. They denounce gay people, but their musicians and choir directors are gay. And they denounce trans people, but their choir directors and 
musicians are transgender people. And they have this don't ask, don't tell policy, basically, in church. I will publicly denounce you, but privately affirm you. And I notice in church, they, um, not all churches, a handful of churches, I notice that they will denounce tobacco smoking, but they live double lives of smoking packs of tobacco products every day. These are the same people that denounce drunkenness, but they live double lives of inebriation. And these are the same people that denounce hookup culture and fornication. But outside of church and inside of church, they fornicate because they're engaging in hookup culture. These are the same people that will denounce pornography, but they feel like pornography is their compulsory behavior, which it is because of a double life of porn. And these are the same people that denounce porn stars and porn performers, but they're secretly having sex with porn stars and porn performers. These are the same people that denounce porn, but they watch it, they view it, and they pay for it. And they'll even watch it for free and masturbate to it for free and finger themselves to it for free. These are the same people that denounce strippers, but they'll pay for stripper services. These are the same people that denounce divorce, but there are high amounts of church divorce, though. These are the same people that denounce single parents, but they have a lot of baby mamas and a lot of baby fathers too. These are the same people that denounce cursing, but they use profanity frequently. These are the same people that denounce adult comedy clubs, but they secretly attend them. These are the same people that denounce adult comedy but behind the scenes, they find adult comedy to be humorous to them. These are the same people that denounce TVMA rated R, rated PG-13, rated NC-17 movies. But behind the scenes, they enjoy all these kinds of movies and all these kinds of movie ratings. They're the same people that... Um, denounce people for getting abortions, but they've had a history and still have history of getting abortions themselves. These are the same people that would denounce pro-choice thinkers, but they've gotten their mistresses and male side pieces to assist in abortion provision. And they have history of paying for abortions. 
These are the same people that claim to be of sexual purity, but they uphold rape culture. These are the same people talk, who talk about protecting the kids, but they're beating kids and raping kids and robbing kids and stealing from kids behind the scenes. These are the same people that denounce out-of-wedlock parenting, out-of-wedlock births, out-of-wedlock children, but they have out-of-wedlock kids in America and outside of America. These are the same people that tell people don't play cards, don't go to games, don't go to the movies, don't listen to the music, behind the scenes, they do all the above. These are the same people that tell you never doubt, never have any skepticism, but they're the biggest doubts and skeptics that they know of themselves. These are the same people that will denounce gay bars and lesbian bars behind the scenes. They frequent gay bars and lesbian bars. These are the same people that denounce people for being non-Christians, for being secular, but behind the scenes, they're secular themselves and they're non-Christians themselves. Let me keep going. There are many online options for Christians to consume. The convenience of listening to a sermon as you drive to work or singing worship music as you get ready in the morning coincide with a cultural and religious shift in our country. That makes me think about how Many people have it easier in terms of filtering sermons and filtering music of gospel music because for some people in some for walls, some of the sermons in music may have had unholy lyricism to it. and ungodly content about it. And so a lot of Christians feel poisoned by that. Because they're wondering could this be from God? And they feel like if I have to ask this, can this be from God? Then more than likely, chances are that it's not from God. Meaning inspiration of the sermons and the music. Then it says, fewer and fewer Christians go to church or think going to church is essential in being a Christian than ever before. For me, there's nothing wrong with listening to sermons and singing worship music 
nothing wrong with going to church and at the same time many people want real church real church is I struggle with you I suffer with you I'm rejected with you and I am uncomfortable discomforted with you we search for an answer together and you're not just in my life two three hours or an hour 45 minutes in a church building and then you go your way I go my way and I had faked nice toward you, act fake nice toward me, and I only pass the peace when the pastor tells me other than that, I wouldn't even try to look your way nor speak to you. God doesn't want any of that. At least the healthy understandings of God I do have. Then it says and there's nothing Wrong with, you know, needing a house of worship. As long as you don't make it God, then there's no problem. Then it says, American church statistics. The latest statistics indicate this is a trend. Among the more illuminated findings are, America's membership among all religious houses of worship fell below 50% for the first time in the 80 years Gallup has been keeping data. Among all demographics, Almost 20% fewer people attend church in 2020 than 2000. One third fewer Americans attend church now than in 1993. Only 30%, only 36% of Christians attend church at least once a week. More and more Christians post pandemic are staying home, electing to not attend church or watching services online. Wow. I think that is happening because sadly, not all the believers are one in heart and mind. Many people who claim to be believers claim that any of their possessions are their own because they don't share everything they have. people are noticing that there are needy persons among them. The majority of them are not are not pitching in financially to help people to purchase houses and apartments that God clearly laid out for them to have. And many most of them have land but won't sell it to those in to those who are in dire circumstances. They don't distribute to anyone who had need. They don't bring the money from their sales and put it at the apostles' feet. They don't share their possessions. 
They don't devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. They don't devote themselves to fellowship. They don't devote themselves to discipleship. They don't devote themselves to the breaking of bread, and they don't devote themselves to prayer. In the church world, not everyone is filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers are not together, and they don't have everything in common. They're not big on selling their property. And they're not big on selling their possession to give to anyone who had need because some of them refused to give to anyone who had need. Um, every day they don't continue to meet together in the architecture called church. They don't break bread in their homes. And they don't eat together with gladness and sincere hearts. They don't praise God and they don't enjoy the favor of all the people. And the Lord, and the Lord is not adding to their number. Because daily those who are not being saved. They they reject the fellowship of the believers. truly are a corrupt generation. Then it says, the data suggests that fewer people are attending in-person worship in the U.S. than ever before. What's going on? Are people losing faith? Well, I've learned don't make the church God. Don't make the pews God. Don't make the pulpit God. Don't make the pastors God. Don't make the congregations God. Don't make the worship music God. Don't make the praise dance God. Don't make all the spiritual gifts God. Don't make all the falling on the altar, speaking in tongues. And don't... uh, Don't make the hymns God. Don't make the church leadership God. Don't make the tithes and offerings God. And don't make the love offerings God either. And it says reasons for leaving the church, spiritual abuse or religious trauma. Some who leave church do so to get away from harm, trauma, and abuse. I can honestly say that's me. I'm not saying Waterfront Church did that to me. What I'm saying is years of of um, being in some churches where I endure spiritual harm, spiritual trauma, spiritual abuse because the affirmations I needed from the church based upon being black, autistic, and child abuse, I didn't get that from them. 
And it says, recently, an internal investigation by the Southern Baptist Convention, SBC, the largest Protestant denomination in the USA, revealed how church leaders from the SBC covered up sexual abuses in their churches. Many people in the church world think it's just the Catholics who cover up sexual abuse in their churches. That's a lie. The Protestant world is guilty of that same spiritual felony as well. Then it says, this is hardly an outlier. The hashtag Church 2 began in 2017 on social media as more and more people stepped forward to tell their story of sexual abuse, spiritual abuse at the hands of church leaders. Organizations like Grace and Pellicid have long wait lists as churches line up to hire competent, trauma-informed independent investigators to address allegations of spiritual abuse, religious trauma, and sexual abuse in churches. The problem with inviting everyone to church is that some that you invite may be rapists, may be pedophiles, may be intimate partner violence offenders, Maybe domestic violence offenders. Maybe adult abusers, maybe child abusers. So people of those backgrounds should be allowed church because they have a heart of predation because they're predators. They have a heart of perpetrating because they're perpetrators. Then it says, in cases of abuse and trauma, people are leaving churches to get away from harm or they are disillusioned with ungodly responses to harmful behavior. This is an instance of people leaving church for their own good as they move away from the harm they experience in their church. Well, I know for me that I left because hungry for more money, more power, more status, and they lose sight of God, and they allow their spiritual blindness to spread to all seven continents and all islands. And they are attracted to religion, not to God. They're getting caught up in the details of their additional laws and regulations they completely miss God to whom the law is pointed. They don't want to admit that a religion of works puts pressure on people to surpass others in what they know and do. And because they're hypocritical leaders, they have students who are even more hypocritical. 
and they are creating Pharisees by emphasizing outward obedience at the expense of inner renewal. They'll get mad when I say that it's possible to obey the details of the laws, but still be disobedient in their general behavior. For example, they claim to be very precise and faithful about giving 10% of their money to God, but they refuse to give one minute of their time in helping others. They'll claim that tithing is important, but they feel like giving tithes does exempt them from filling God's other directives. Then it says, failure to do justice, love, kindness, and walk humbly with God. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Micah chapter 6 verse 8. A second reason we hear from those who have left their church has to do with issues of justice, racism, patriarchy, misogyny, economic disparity, support for violence and war, etc. Hmm. I'm going to make it clear. Jesus is anti-racism. Jesus is anti-patriarchy. Jesus is anti-misogyny. Jesus is anti-economic disparities. Jesus is anti-support for violence. And Jesus is anti-support for war. Then it says... The writer of this article says, I've spoke with a number of pastors who spoke up about Black Lives Matter or church abuse scandals happening in their denomination. They were forced to resign by their board or elders. To me, that is genuinely heartbreaking, and I'll explain why. Because Jesus is Mr. Black Lives Matter. Allow that to marinate. The woman caught an adultery story. That was an ancient house of worship scandal. It was a temple scandal, a synagogue scandal. But it resembled the church abuse scandals of our modern time. So in their mind, that actually being for Jesus means that they find kingdom discipleship to be punitive. So if you really follow Jesus, they'll literally give you earthly hell for it. Mm, mm, mm. Then it says, likewise, parishioners find that they cannot pursue acting justly according to their conscience without being labeled as a social justice warrior, SJW, or worse. There's nothing wrong with being a social justice warrior for Jesus. And there's nothing wrong with being a social justice warrior at all. So actually, they're trying to insult you is actually a compliment. Oh, you're acknowledging that I'm alleviating 
the marginalization of others, I wear it as a badge of honor proudly. It says, faced with the choice of ignoring their conscience or gaslighting their convictions, many are walking away from membership in a local church to band together with other like-minded folks keen on fighting injustice. I think that is beautiful that their humanity stays intact. Here's what a lot of people in church don't want to admit. They are the Pharisees who strained their water so they wouldn't accidentally swallow a gnat. Um, they behave as unclean in- insects according to the law. They are meticulous about the details of ceremonial cleanliness. They nevertheless had lost their perspective on inner purity. In, in essence, they would then swallow a camel, not even notice, ceremonially clean, on, ceremonially clean on the outside. They have corrupt hearts. Let's keep going. Dismissal or punishment of questions slash doubts. Another reason people are leaving Christian churches has to do with what is commonly called deconstruction. Oh, I enjoy deconstruction. I also enjoy deconversion, too. It says deconstruction involves asking questions, probing doubts, and seeking different ways to understand and live more faithfully the Christian life. So basically, they are acting spiritual to cover up sin. They are pretending to have learned from past history, but their present behavior shows they have learned nothing. They are keeping up appearances while their private worlds are corrupt. They are involving themselves in every last detail, ignoring what is really important, justice, mercy, and faith. They're not letting others enter heaven and they're not entering themselves. They're converting people away from God to be like themselves. They blind they are they are spiritually blindly leading God's people to follow man-made traditions instead of instead of God. Then it says many churches cannot handle questions and doubts. Especially around hot button issues like gender slash sexuality, racism, abortion slash reproductive rights, gun violence, and the climate crisis. I just want to say that I'm anti-racism. I am pro-choice when it comes to abortion and for reproductive rights. I want to end gun violence through gun control. And the climate and climate change is real. The climate crisis is an actual problem. I am. I am pro-LGBTQI+. I am pro-gender and sexual diversity. I also want to say that I am a social justice warrior. I hate racism. I hate patriarchy. I hate misogyny. I hate economic disparity. I hate support for violence. I hate support for war. And I am for Black Lives Matter. It says, um, additionally, when people encounter theological or exegetical arguments that challenge their received 
and perceived dogma, authorship of scripture, contradictions in Bible, errors in Bible, interpolations in the Bible, mistranslations of the Bible, mistransliteration of the Bible, evolution, religious pluralism, eschatology, etc. They are unable to process and probe these questions without being shut down or shut out of their religious communities. Many find that there is simply no room to ask questions or face doubts in church systems built upon quote-unquote being right in conformity to an official dogma. So, basically, if Jesus were alive today, he would condemn them as the Pharisees that they are for outwardly appearing saintly and holy, but inwardly remaining full of corruption and greed. They feel like living their Christianity merely as a show for others is like they're washing a cup on the outside only. They try to make themselves appear to be clean on the inside. Now they try their best to make it look like they're clean on the inside, but they are dirty inside. Then it says our cleanliness on the outside won't be a sham, but for them it's definitely a sham. It says theological contradictions. People leave church not only because they can't question what they believe, but also because they experience hypocrisy and lack of integrity and stated theological convictions. A lack of transparency and honesty plays into this as well. Mm. Well, that makes me also Think about the fact that um, their love for positions of leadership in the church are stronger than their loyalty to God. They serve themselves rather than serve others. If Jesus were alive today, he would continuously expose their hypocritical attitudes of themselves as religious leaders. Jesus would say to them that they knew the scriptures but did not live by them. If Jesus were alive today, he would say, yeah, I don't care about being holy, just looking holy in order to receive the people's admiration and praise. Jesus would say to them if he were alive today, y'all are a bunch of Pharisees because 
You know the Bible, but you do not let it change your life. You say that you follow me, but you don't live by my standards of love. So yeah, people who are opposite day with me, who, who live this way, are hypocrites. And he would say that it's shameful that y'all are not making sure that your actions match your beliefs. And it says, churches make a big deal about repentance and grace, but treat those in power differently when caught in sin than they do lay people. Churches make a big deal of being quote-unquote biblical, but then ignore inconvenient or challenging passages that contradict their politics or culture. For example, they will clown the world by calling out the world's sins. But because they do the same exact sins that the world does, it makes it sound like it's only just the world doing it. But when the world calls out to those churches for their sins, they engage in feigned outrage, fake outrage, and selective outrage. So, they are the type that know the scriptures but purposely do not live by them. And I say that again because Jesus would say to them, you are Pharisees because your traditions and your interpretations and applications of the laws have become as important to them as God's law itself. Jesus would say to them, the problem arises when you fake me out religious leaders, take man-made rules as seriously as God's laws, you tell the people to obey these rules, but you don't do so yourselves. And you seemingly obey the rules not to honor God, but to make yourselves look good. That's why I condemn you for what you are, hypocrites. That's pretty much what Jesus said to them. And these Pharisees hate the fact that Jesus challenges society's norms. These Pharisees hate the fact that to Jesus, greatness comes from serving, giving of yourself to help God and others. These Pharisees hate that service keeps us aware of others' needs. And it stops us from focusing only on ourselves. Pharisees hate that. Pharisees hate the fact that Jesus came as a servant. Pharisees hate the question, what kind of greatness do you seek? Jesus would look at so many churches today and he would say, You are failing me miserably. 
by not loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. He said, y'all are too stupid to understand this is the first and greatest commandment. And Jesus would say to them, you're also failing me miserably by not loving your neighbor as yourself was the second commandment. And he would say, y'all are too crazy to understand that all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus would say to these, to some of these churches, y'all are Pharisees because y'all want the truth only if it supports your own views and causes. Y'all ask people questions to track them, not to protect them. And Jesus would say to them, Y'all ask me questions to trap me and not to protect me. You know, these same churches would be are angry at Jesus because he keeps exposing their evil motives. And they don't want to admit that they're embarrassing themselves in front of Jesus and the whole world, which is watching. And then... Jesus would say to them, wounded people are subject for you to discuss. Wounded people are those you use and exploit. Wounded people in your minds are problems to be avoided. Wounded people in your minds are customers to serve for a fee. Wounded people are not human beings worth being cared for and loved in your minds. And he would say to them, all them, all of us are not worth dying for and living for in your minds. That's what Jesus would say to those churches then Jesus would say to them that Wealth is not a proof of a person's righteousness. Jesus would say to these churches, Wealth is not a sign of God's approval. He would say, I detest your wealth because it causes you to abandon true spirituality in reference to me. Jesus would say to them, 
Prosperity may earn people's praise, but it must never substitute for devotion service to me. And also Jesus would say to them, you're not supposed to measure people's worth by how much money they make. Jesus would say to them, you're not supposed to laugh at my warnings against serving money. Jesus would say to them, you're not supposed to act piously to get praise from others, even though God knows what is in your hearts. And lastly, Jesus would say to them, it's sad that y'all are so set in your ways that neither scripture nor me would shake you loose. And it says, the inability to acknowledge and reckon with theological contradictions in a particular tradition contributes to some leaving the church. They experience selective application of scripture and a disregard for emphasis in the Bible, care for the poor, nonviolent resistance, sharing all possessions in common, etc., as dishonest and hypocritical. Rather than ignore or justify the incongruity, some people choose to leave. There's a scripture in the NIV, not a scripture, but there is a commentary in the NIV that addresses that issue. It says, Jesus warned about God's wrath for those who offend, abuse, or lead people astray. Indifference to the training and treatment of new Christians can leave them theologically vulnerable. Make the follow-through care of recent converts and new members a high priority in your church. Then there's another passage, another com- other commentaries that address what I just read to you. The transfiguration was a foretaste of heaven. The participants were doing something worth noting, talking together. In God's world, interactions count highly. People are individuals with minds, hearts, and opinions. 
People are also part of a wider whole connected by French, connected by relationships built on sharing between whole persons. Friendship is the key. Make time and opportunity to talk with others. Good conversations act as training for eternity. And then it, um, talks about We work hard to keep our outward appearance attractive, but what is in our hearts is even more important. The way we are deep down where others can't see matters much to God. What are you like inside? When people become Christians, God makes them different on the outside. God will continue the process of change inside them if they only ask. God wants us to seek healthy thoughts and motives, not just healthy food and exercise. I then notice hypocrites in the churches meaning some people in the church hate that following Jesus is not always easy and not always comfortable they hate that often following Jesus means great cost and great sacrifice and great surrendering with no earthly rewards and no earthly security. They hate that Jesus didn't always have a place to call home. They they hate that they may find that following Jesus causes them popularity, friendships, leisure time, and treasured habits. They hate the fact that while the cost of following Jesus is high, the value of being Jesus' disciple is even higher. They hate that discipleship is an investment that lasts for eternity and yields incredible rewards. They love to glorify themselves and downplay Jesus and minimize Jesus. 
They refuse to take up their cross and follow Jesus. They, the religious hypocrites in church, some of the people in church, they hate that many of Jesus' parables are about their Pharisaism. They're not true believers, they are false believers. I noticed that they also are not willing to die for Jesus. These same religious hate these same religious hypocrites hate that God's family is accepting and doesn't exclude anyone. These same religious hypocrites hate that although Jesus cared for his mother and brothers, he also cared for all those who loved him. These same religious hypocrites hate that Jesus did not show partiality, that he allowed everyone the privilege of obeying God and becoming part of his family. The religious hypocrites are mad that in our increasingly computerized and personal world, warm relationships among members of God's family take on major importance. The religious hypocrites hate the reality that the church should give the loving, personalized care that many people find nowhere else. The religious hypocrites hate that God calls common everyday people to follow Jesus. more than he does the 1%. Then it says shame and judgment. Finally, there are those who left the church because at their lowest point, whether it was a mental health issue or sin or poverty or divorce or death of a loved one, they experienced shunning, shame, judgment, or abandonment from their church. So basically, there are some churches that excommunicate people and disfellowship people because of their anxiety disorders, eating disorders, mood disorders, personality disorders, psychotic disorders, substance use disorders, alcohol use disorders, agitation, anxiety, depression, mania, paranoia. Psychosis, mental breakdowns, mental disabilities, mental diseases, mental health conditions, mental illnesses, nervous breakdowns, psychiatric disabilities, psychiatric disorders, psychological disabilities, and psychological disorders. These are the same churches that 
disfellowship people and excommunicate people because they take medication, antidepressants, antipsychotics, anxiolytics, anxiolytics, mood stabilizers, and stimulants. These are the same churches that excommunicate people because they experience mental health services from mental health professionals, psychologists, psychiatrists, and counselors, coaches, and therapists, and gurus. These are the same churches that excommunicate people and disfellowship people because of their cognitive impairment, social problems, and suicidal ideations. It says, many people who've left churches have done so because they heard great sermons and teachings about love and grace and transformation of the goodness of the Christian community but when they needed those things the most in their lives, they didn't experience them. That's, to me, I'm thinking about how they treat those with intimate part of us and domestic violence and making it seem like they're, you know, blaming them for their body, calling them physically ugly, um, agreeing with their abusive spouse, that they must be a bunch of sexual horror stories or that they are not submissive enough or that the abuser is beating the sin out of the spouse Those are the kinds of stories that many parishioners talk to pastors about. It says, Some church cultures have a high level of toxic shame that permeates the staff and congregational culture. When people begin to experience the goodness of healing friendships at work or in their neighborhood, or the grace and acceptance and challenge that can be found in some therapeutic relationships, Support groups, social workers, counselors are able to identify the goodness and health they receive there. There are some churches that will demonize you for being a part of support groups and for seeing social workers. Then it says, unfortunately, many people look to relationships and experts outside the church to find transformation and healing because too many churches seek punitive or retributive strategies for human change. Wow. So in other words, they are the kind of of churches that are a den of thieves 
So a lot of churches are not churches. They're actually safe havens for monsters. It says, why do young people leave the church? You can actually ask, why do Gen Z leave the church? Why do millennials leave the church? Why do Generation X leave the church? Why do baby boomers leave the church? Because these generations are also leaving the church too. But let's focus on young people. It says, in addition to all this, Young people are leaving the church for reasons of their own. Recent research from Barna found six reasons young Christians are leaving. It says, number one, the experience of fear-based Christianity. Young Christians want a faith that helps them engage and navigate their world, but too often they experience reactionary culture war, fear-based ways of relating to the world. Young people don't see the world as a threat, but as their home. Hmm. I recognize that Well, all I can say is they act spiritual to cover up crimes so many in the church do and they have Christianized fear-mongering. They have Christianized cruelty. And then the whole looking at the world as a planetary dungeon instead of a A habitat of peacefulness is also a problem. So, what they're saying is young Christians are tired of the theatricality of church, the performative religion of church, the saying so little about what God says so much, and saying so much about what God says so little in the words of Bishop. William Barber. Young Christians are tired of that too. Young Christians, they were tired of you being loud about what doesn't matter and being quiet about what does matter. Mm. Then it says number two, lack of depth and spirituality in church. Young Christians want to be challenged to talk about deep and vital topics, to have a faith that is robust and rugged rugged enough to handle life's most challenging questions. 
but many experience church as boring, shallow, with messages and ministries disconnected from the questions and challenges most important to them. I think it's because that they are tired of the toxic positivity in church, the spiritual bypassing in church, the spiritualizing in church, the word salads of church, the psychological gymnastics of church, the verbal backflips of church, the talking in circles in, in church, and the circular conversations in church, the psychologically manipulative, not answering questions in church, and they're sick and tired of the whole talking loud and saying nothing which happens in church. Young people are basically saying y'all are a bunch of dull knives. Y'all just ain't cutting. I'm paraphrasing James Brown. This is number three. Culture wars and the embrace of anti-science. Most young Christians don't have the baggage of being at war with science. In fact, they're looking for ways to integrate and make sense of how science and religion coexist in the world as revelations of truth. Anti-science rhetoric and policies are a big turnoff to them. I think what young Christians are saying is, is that the, the church should stop being afraid of knowledge, afraid of understanding, afraid of comprehension, afraid of grasp, afraid of grip, afraid of command, afraid of mastery, afraid of apprehension, afraid of expertise, afraid of skill, afraid of proficiency, afraid of expertness, afraid of accomplishments, afraid of adeptness, afraid of capacity, afraid of capability, afraid of savoir faire, afraid of learning, afraid of erudition, afraid of education, afraid of scholarship, afraid of letters, afraid of schooling, Afraid of science, afraid of wisdom, afraid of enlightenment, afraid, afraid of philosophy, afraid of information, afraid of facts, afraid of data, afraid of intelligence, afraid of news, afraid of reports, afraid of lore, afraid of familiarity with critical thinking, afraid of acquaintance with thinking for yourself, afraid of conversance with truth, and afraid of intimacy with evidence. Young Christians want the church to stop being afraid of facts, information, and skills acquired by people through experiences and educations, the theoretical or practical understandings of a subject. Young Christians want the church to stop being afraid of what is known in a particular field or in total.
young Christians saying we're f- we want the church to stop being afraid of awareness of familiarity gained by experience of a fact or situation. Young Christians saying we don't want the church to be afraid of awareness, consciousness, subconsciousness, realization, enlightenment, recognition, cognition, apprehension, perception, appreciation, cognizance. They want the church to stop being afraid of philosophies, which is a true justified belief or understanding as opposed to opinion. There's more for me to say. Number four, judgmental attitudes, especially in regards to gender and sexuality. Young Christians are looking for more faithful ways of navigating human sexuality and gender than what they've received from their parents. Purity culture shunning LGBTQ plus people in ways that others are not. Body shaming and misogyny are all troubling. And churches often do not respond well to young people seeking better ways to handle the complex reality of gender and sexuality. Because here's what a lot of church people don't admit. There has been the Christianizing of brutality, the Christianizing of savagery, the Christianizing of savageness, the Christianizing of inhumanity, the Christianizing of barbarism, the Christianizing of barbarousness, the Christianizing of brutishness, the Christianizing of bloodthirstiness, the Christianizing of murderousness, the Christianizing of viciousness, the Christianizing of ferocity, the Christianizing of ferociousness, and the Christianizing of fierceness. By the way, I, re- I I hate purity culture. I don't value shunning LGBTQ plus people. I hate body shaming. I hate kink shaming. I hate slut shaming, I hate sex shaming, and I hate consent shaming, and I hate prude shaming too. I'm for queer positivity. A lot of churches stop telling people to be totally doubt-free even in suffering, to be totally questioning even in suffering, to be totally skepticism-free even in suffering. That explains more reasons why people tend to experience Jesus outside of church and inside of church. Then it says, number five, a lack of open-mindedness. Young people in general are growing up in more diverse communities than their parents. They're exposed to a wide variety of ethnicities and religions and worldviews. These young Christians are looking for churches that respect difference, honor similarities, and do so without shunning or excluding people who think differently than they do. Wow. 
these are all of my legitimate models to live by for sure it says there's a value of open-mindedness and inclusion that they're looking to live into if they identify as christian because they're tired of church callousness church sadism church ruthlessness church relentlessness church mercilessness church pitilessness church remorselessness church heartlessness church cold-heartedness church cold-bloodedness church severity church harshness church inclemency church wickedness church badness church baseness church iniquities church blackness i'm not talking about racial construct i'm talking about the character construct black hardness evil offended uh Church black, church black hardness, church evil, church fiendishness, church devilishness, church heinousness, church nastiness, church unkindness, church abuse, church trauma, church victimization, church lack of regard, church lack of sympathy, church lack of charity, and church verity. That is what many people are sick and tired of. And it says... Number six, a dismissal of serious questions and doubts with mere platitudes. This is a very this is very similar to older generations as well. Easy answers, trite platitudes, simplifying complexity, which is impossible to do, and appeals to just listen to the authority are not compelling the young Christians. They have a higher tolerance, total space for doubt and questions, and are looking for churches that will take them in their doubts seriously. I can relate to that said feeling. Because young Christians befriend questions, befriend inquiries, befriend interrogations, befriend examinations, befriend curies, befriend cross-examinations, befriend probing, befriend quizzing. And they love a sentence is worded and expressed so as to elicit information. They love to ask questions of those, especially in official contexts. They love the utterance which serves as a request for information. Because all these things in their mind grows us in God exponentially exponentially that's their thought pattern they don't mind cross questioning needed it says why do pastors leave the church at gravity we work with a number of pastors who have left their churches and pastoral ministry altogether in the last several years in addition to all the reasons stated above we found that burnout is a major factor in why clergy leave the church our friend Bethany Dearborn Heiser discussed the toll that compassion fatigue and moral injury take on those in helping professions like the pastorate in a recent episode of their podcast. The combination of a lack of commitment to self-care and incredibly high emotional and relational demands of being a minister 
makes burnout a far too frequent reason for pastors leaving the church. I think also has everything to do with the fact that um, T.D. Jakes talked about how the Hollywood spirit is overtaking the church because many people go to church because of the brand name or that's where the TV preachers preach at. And because of how big the church is, if they would have it their way, they would wish that they left. That cult environment they call a church behind. told me I'm just so blown away the stun of how bad church has become mm. leave that cult man that that cult called Church Pines is leaving behind. I'm not saying all churches, just the ones that are proven to be problematic, those. Says, um, you know, we try to do everything on your own. Celebrating with and it also makes sense that pastors feel pressure be all things to all people all the time. That is an impossibility that can never be done ever. It says how to respond when people leave the church. Let's go over this again. Why do pastors leave the church? At Gravity, we work with a number of pastors who left their churches and pastoral ministry altogether in the last several years. In addition to all the reasons stated above, we found that burnout is a major factor why clergy leave the church. I want to stop right there so many times people go to the pastors for everything. That's why I do not believe in pastors being on call 24-7 because their family life suffers, their marriages suffer, their friendship lives suffer. Then you have the issue of favoritism in the church and how that can cause people to feel alienated and that can cause envious jealousy to occur. And then they never call therapists, they never call psychologists, they never call psychiatrists, they never call the police, they never call their doctors, never call their dentists, they always call their pastors. That is pastoral 
idolatry. That is also what I call pastoral worship. That's pastoral deification. Then it says, our friend Bethany Dearborn Heiser discussed the toll that compassion fatigue and more injury take on those in helping professions like the pastor in a recent episode of our podcast. Sad to say, many people think that all pastors are perfect and they confuse their pastors for Jesus because they would rather have the people of God as God than to have Jehovah Yahweh as God. Then it says the combination of a lack of commitment to self-care and the incredibly high emotional relational demands of being a minister makes burnout a far too frequent reason for pastors leaving the church. I've noticed that um, many people in the church try to get pastoral permission to sin. They already do that in their prayer life with God. So what they do is, I'm going to go to the pastor. I'm going to make innuendos and hints at any sin I want to do. It could be adultery. Um, for example, it could also be, I'm going to leave my spouse for somebody else. They may not put it in those words, but they'll just say, oh, I'm unhappy with my marriage and I did the best I could, you know, do you think I should divorce? You know, God may be leading me in this direction. Of course, most pastors are not quick to permit divorce. They're like, okay, did you do, you know, couples therapy, marriage counseling? Well, we tried all this, it didn't work. Or sometimes they lie to their pastors and sometimes they're upfront about what they want to do. And that's the pastors get frustrated. So my thing is this. Don't become passive aggressive with the congregation. If they're doing things they're not supposed to be doing, make sure that some members have no access to you if they're not going to live the biblical life that they agree to live by. Because pastors can't permit what is considered sin in the Bible. It's not a part of their job. It's not a part of, as they say, their calling. So it's stupid and crazy to try to get a pastor to approve of not doing their jobs as pastors. Then it said, you know, then it says how to respond when people leave your church. So what can we do? How do we who work in churches or care about the health and vitality of our local church respond to the people who leave our church and the reasons they do so? A few proposals that may help us move in faithfulness in these situations. So before I say anything, before I read any further, actually, I just want to make it clear that um, I do have a heart for the church. Um, and that's how I truly feel. That's why I do so many episodes on church, because I really have a heart for it. And to be honest, I do have love for the church. I have an intense feeling of deep affection for the church. I have fondness for the church. I have tenderness for the church. I have warmth for the church. I have intimacy with the church. I have attachment to the church. I have endearment to the church. I have devotion to the church. I have adoration for the church. I I'm, I desire the church. I care for the church. I hold the church high regard. I have compassion for the church 
I have empathy for the church. I have a yearning for the church. I have a friendship with the church. I have, a, I have kindness for the church. I have goodwill for the church. I have um, benevolence for the church. I have altruism for the church. I have philanthropy for the church. I have humanitarianism for the church. So let's keep going. It says, um, number one, validate experience. The impulse to defend the church or correct someone who has left can be strong. Many people leave churches because they experience shame, judgment, harm, abuse, manipulation, and neglect at the hands of other Christians who turned out to be Pharisees and Christian leaders who turned out to be Pharisees themselves. Um, and for me, I want to say this on record. I'm not even trying to change any of the church's beliefs. That's not something I care about. That's not something I want to do. I have no interest in that. Plus, that's unnecessary exhaustion. That's time wasted. So, for example, there are Christians who disapprove of pornography. There are Christians who disapprove of abortion. There are Christians who disapprove of comprehensive sex education. And I don't even try to change their minds because I have much better things to do with my life. There are Christians who disapprove of biological evolution. There are Christians who disapprove of embryonic stem cell research. Um, There are Christians who um, support Sunday Sabbatarianism. There are Christians who support school prayer. There are Christians who support temperance. There are Christians who support creationist public education. Again, I don't even try to change their minds because I have much better things to do with my time. So me helping the church improve does not mean I try to take away their conservative theology. Mm -mm. What I'm saying is, regardless of your theology, always be the good Samaritan and figure out how can your beliefs better the lives of people who've been traumatized that's my thing i don't i'm not trying to change their theology i i I don't need to do that what i'm saying is whatever your theology is it has to be from a it has to be compassion centered um there are christians who disapprove of homosexuality there are christians who um disapprove of fornication. There are Christians who disapprove of cohabitation, living together without being married. There are Christians who disapprove of gambling. There are Christians who disapprove of marijuana. There are Christians who disapprove of profanity. Uh, There are Christians who disapprove of nightlife. And there are Christians who disapprove of masturbation. There are Christians who disapprove of erotica, even though um, song of song in the Bible is maybe the only erotica that some of them are willing to accept because it's in the Bible. But and then there are Christians who, um, you know, disapprove of plural marriages and plural relationships. Um, there are Christians who disapprove of non-monogamy of any of all forms, and. I'll say this for the last time in this episode. I am not interested in changing their minds on any of these 
human subjects because I have much better things to do with my time. What I would say to them is don't animize people who love differently, live differently, think differently, vote differently, believe differently than you. Does that mean change your views? No. It means how can my views be filled with compassion. That's the focus. I would tell many Christians, look, I understand that doing things the biblical way is important to you. There's a difference between that and Christian nationalism. I would say it's okay to evangelize. It's okay to proselytize. It's okay to you know, convert the people who have that desire. And it's okay to persuade and convince people who want to be Christian. That's all good. I would say there's a difference between that and the problem of theocracy, because I would say theocracy means that you're willing to violate the human rights of people who aren't Christians, and that's not Christian of itself to do. So I would say I understand the whole I want the laws of America to be biblically centered. I get that, and I'm not going to shame you for that. It, I, it's understandable. However, Jesus would not want to have himself imposed upon anybody. He would want people to believe in him because of a voluntary choice. Because if you believe in somebody forced, then you don't really believe in them at all. And Jesus would be grieving over that. That would cause, as they say in the Bible, the grieving of the Holy Spirit. So I would say there is a balancing act. It's like, okay, yes, you can be a Christian and have socially conservative positions on any given issue, any given subject, any given topic and idea. But to um, make people Christian, the issue with that is they wouldn't truly be Christian in heart. And Jesus hates deception. Um, and I would also say that there are Christians who disapprove of, of, of obscenity and there are Christians who disapprove of unmarried contraception. And I would say, hey, you know, the human rights world is never about trying to make anybody feel any differently than they do. It's all about, hey, regardless of your views, you're not allowed to be a bigot, ever. Bigotry is crossing the line. Um, There are Christians who approve of Sunday blue laws. And again, they have the human right to that perspective. Um, 
people like me are saying just, you know, don't be us versus them about how you feel. And it's kind of like, you know, for me, I think about it like this. There are also Christians, and I'm not trying to cause an argument here, but I have to be honest about church because there are Christians who have socially conservative views on any given subject. That is true. But what's also the truth is that um, you have Christians who, yes, there are Christians who disapprove of euthanasia and they have the human right to that. But, um, okay, let's get to the truth here. There are Christians who disapprove of creationism in public education. There are Christians who disapprove of school prayer. There are Christians who disapprove of temperance. There are Christians who disapprove of Christian nationalism and theocracy. There are Christians who disapprove of Sunday Sabbatarianism. There are Christians who disapprove of biological evolution. There are Christians who disapprove of embryonic... There are Christians who... uh, I'm sorry. There are Christians who approve of biological evolution. There are Christians who approve of embryonic stem cell research. There are Christians who approve of LGBTQI plus rights. There are Christians who approve of comprehensive sex education. There are Christians who approve of abortion. There are Christians who approve of pornography. There are Christian, you know, so let me say that again. There are Christians who disapprove of creationism, public education, school prayer, temperance, Christian national theocracy, and Sunday Sabbatarianism. There are Christians who disapprove of those things. And there are Christians who um, approve of biological evolution, embryonic stem cell research, LGBT plus rights, comprehensive sex education, abortion, and pornography. They approve, so Christians approve of those things. You know, not everybody in church feels the same. Then there, are church, then there are Christians who approve of euthanasia, contraception, gambling, obscenity. And there are Christians who disapprove of the Sunday Blue Laws. There are Christians who don't have a problem with fornication, plural marriages and plural relationships, masturbation. And there are Christians who approve of ethical non-monogamy. I'm just telling the truth. Then it says, let's get back to this so nobody's confused. It says, number one, validate experience. The impulse to defend the church or correct someone who has left can be strong. Many people leave church because they've experienced shame, judgment, harm, abuse, manipulation, or neglect at the hands of other Christians who are supposed to be Pharisees and Christian, other Christians who, are, who turn out to be Pharisees and Christian leaders who turn out to be Pharisees themselves. They're both Pharisees. They're not real Christians. Try responding with, I'm sorry that has happened to you and that's wrong. I can see how hurtful it is. And thank you for sharing this with me. Notice if and how you want to argue and be right and resist the urge to do that 
if you are speaking with a hurting person. I must go over this again. How to respond when people leave your church. So what can we do? How do we who work in churches or care about the health and vitality of our local church respond to the people who leave our church and the reasons they do so? A few proposals that may help us move in faithfulness in these situations. And I'll say this, um, and I do not mean any disrespect, but um, there is diverse viewpoints on these sensitive matters in church. Um, There are theological moderates, liberal on some theological topics and conservative on other theological topics. So some Christians are in that realm. Then there are Christians who are conservative on every topic. Then there are Christians who are liberal on every topic too. So you have theological liberals, theological conservatives, and you have theological moderates. Um, Another way of saying it, you have right-wing theology. I mean, they look at the Bible and the way to look at it, it it, it can come off right-wing to many people. Then you have people who are left-wing about the Bible. Then you have people who are left-wing on some things, right-wing on other things. Another way of saying it, you have theological centrists, you have theological progressives, and then you have theological traditionalists. So you have Christians in all those kinds of categories. So, for example, original sin... Some people in church are conservative about it, some are liberal about it, and some are moderate about it. When it comes to heaven, hell, and purgatory, there are Christians who are conservative on those topics, liberal on those topics, and moderate on those topics. Then when it comes to the literal physical return of Jesus, um... There are Christians who are conservative about it, liberal about it, and moderate about it. The literal, physical resurrection of Jesus. So there are Christians who are liberal about it, moderate about it, and conservative about it. The doctrine of the deity of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is fully God and fully man. So there are Christians who are liberal about it, um, moderate about it, and conservative about it. Then you have the doctrine of Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So you have Christians who are liberal about it, moderate about it, and conservative about it. The virgin birth of Jesus Christ. So there are Christians who are liberal about it, moderate about it, and conservative about it. Then higher view of scripture being the authoritative word of God. So you have Christians who are liberal about it, conservative about it, and moderate about it. A belief in the authority of the Bible is God's revelation to humanity. So you have Christians who are moderate, liberal, and conservative. Bible prophecy and Bible narrative are often affirmed. Some may take it further and believe in biblical literalism. Others may hold 
views of biblical infallibility. So, there are Christians who are liberal about it, moderate about it, and conservative about it. This often includes the understanding that the Bible in its original manuscripts is the final authority in all matters on which it speaks on or on matters of faith and religion. One more time. This often includes the understanding that the Bible in its original manuscripts is the final authority in all matters on which it speaks or on matters of faith and religion. So you, there are Christians who are moderate, conservative and liberal uh, placing a central focus on Christ's redeeming work on the cross as the only means for salvation to forgive Mr. sins there are Christians who are moderate liberal and conservative uh, I am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me John chapter 14 verse 6 there are Christians who are liberal about it moderate about it and conservative about it the resurrection of Christ is seen as the most important actual event in the history of the world. There are Christians who are liberal about it, moderate about it, conservative about it. Um, transcendental entities, devils, demons, angels, archangels, guardian angels, um, Satan. Um, there are Christians who are moderate, liberal, and conservative about those subjects. So that is not me causing a fight in the church. That has this has been happening for years. So human rights is not about changing people's theologies because that is not what we are invested in. What we're saying is regardless of your beliefs, be humane. That's it. Okay, so let's go. The Number one, validate experience. The impulse to defend the church or correct someone who has left can be strong. Many people leave churches because they've experienced shame, judgment, harm, abuse, manipulation, or neglect at the hands of other Christians who are supposed to be Pharisee. Um, ugh. Christians who make themselves Pharisees and Christian leaders who make themselves Pharisees. Try responding with, I'm sorry that happened to you, and that's wrong. I can see how hurtful it is, and thank you for sharing this with me. Notice if and how you want to argue and be right, and resist the urge to do that if you're speaking with a hurting person. See, what a lot of people love is when you can admit your mistakes. You can admit that you failed. You can talk about the action steps you're going to take to actually do better. That touches people. Two, listen, those who leave our churches have a lot to teach us about how we can grow in areas we need to address. Be curious, ask questions, listen, take notes, be appreciative, address concerns, and learn from those who've left how to become a healthier church. Then number three, address underlying causes. Take what you've learned and seek to make restitution and repair. If people are leaving because they can't ask questions or their doubts aren't taken seriously, Seek to identify ways to create safety and encourage open discussion. If people are leaving because of harm or abuse of power, seek to reckon with that wrong. Not only will those who have left feel honored and valued that their experiences are taken seriously, but you also take tangible steps to prevent more people leaving in the future due to similar mistakes. 
I left my church now what? Maybe you're you're hearing this because you are someone who's recently walked away from your faith community. You've looked to connect locally to a church can't find a place where you feel safe or seen, where your questions and doubts are validated and your experiences are taken seriously. Many who have left local congregations have found faith communities online that provide what they're looking for. Also, there are people who, some people who leave church are secular people. Um, But either way, show compassion, empathy to both. You know, if they want to come back, actually take all the positive changes that need to be made so they can come back and stay. They got to keep those positive changes intact. And two, even if they never come back, always go to them. Okay, let's find another way for you to fellowship. It could be restaurants. It could be nature. It could be your home. I got my Bible and that's it. I just, that's church to some people. Some people, churches, okay, let's go to events together. That may be lighthearted for some people. This is one reason we started the Gravity Commons as a place for us to listen, learn, ask questions, share stories, and seek Jesus together in an open-handed, non-judgmental environment. Consider joining Gravity Commons and see if it's what you've been looking for. So in other words, and I have to say this because a lot of people don't, don't be assholes. Don't be a person's anus. Don't be a stupid, irritating, and contemptible person. Don't be a jerk. And don't be an idiot. Don't be a fool. Don't be a halfwit. Don't be a nincompoop. Don't be a blockhead. Don't be a buffoon. Don't be a dunce. Don't be a adult. Don't be an ignoramus. Don't be a critton. Don't be an imbecile. Don't be a dullard. Don't be a moron. Don't be a simpleton. Don't be a clod. Don't be a tomfool. Don't be naughty. N-O-D-D-Y. Don't be loggerheaded. Don't be spoony. Don't be mooncalf. And don't be a clodpole. Okay, we got to really keep going on this. And of course, there are Christians who have diverse sets of viewpoints on transgenderism and um, non-binary persons. And you have Christians who have diverse viewpoints on people who of all the other religions. And you have Christians who have diverse viewpoints on people who are secular, no religion at all. Again, have a heart, regardless of where you stand theologically speaking. Okay, then it says this. I asked people why they're leaving Christianity. Here's what I heard. This is analysis by Brandon Flannery. For some time now, Christianity has been on the decline. According to a September 2022 Pew study, people identifying as Christian 
have decreased from 90% of the U.S. population in 1972 to 64% in 2020. But it's not just researchers who are talking about this. As of December 6, 2020, the hashtag XChristian had 696.7 million cumulated views on TikTok that was assigned to more than 68,600 posts on Instagram. When looking specifically at evangelicalism, the numbers nearly double. The hashtag exvangelical was viewed 1.1 billion times on TikTok and was assigned to 105,000 posts on Instagram. People of all backgrounds are processing this great exodus, finding whatever resources they can, especially via social media, to explain this change. But how are pastors and churches reacting? In a 2021 sermon, controversial pastor Matt Chatler called leaving the faith some sexy thing to do. That's a lie because he's gaslighting. He's spiritualizing. He's spiritual bypassing. He's engaging in Christianized toxic positivity. He denounced the process of critiquing one's childhood faith, saying, if you ever experience the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, actually that's really impossible to deconstruct from. That's another lie. Deconstruction is not about destroying the church. Deconstruction is not about removing the freedom to be openly Christian. No. Deconstruction is about enhancing one's perspectives on Jesus through the lens of maturity. Deconstruction is about removing churchianity, not Christianity. Deconstruction is about removing Pharisaism, not kingdom discipleship. Deconstruction is about removing Christless Christianity, not kingdom fellowship. There's the Christianity of Jesus, then there's the kind of Christianity that many have invented that is absent of Jesus. There are distinctions. But if Christianity is just a moral compass, I totally get it. Well, it's deeper than a moral compass. Christianity, it, it, it influences how you treat people that are unlike you. It influences how you treat God. It influences how you treat yourself. It influences your personal life and your professional life. And it says, is this true? Are millions abandoning their faith because Christianity is just a moral compass? No. It's because there are unresolved traumas that the churches not globally have taken a mantle to resolve. Because it's sexy to do so? No, most people who leave church leave church spiritually kicking and screaming. They don't want to leave, but the pain is too much. That's why we left. This is an online survey to uncover why people are leaving Christianity. 
I went to those who would know, the people leaving. What follows is not a typical randomized national sample. It is based on responses to a social media query with a large and diverse response. Reaching out through varying social media platforms, I received 1,200 responses to a survey that asked six questions. One, what what existential framework were you raised in? What existential framework do you find yourself now? What initiated the change the very first instance where things begin to shift? What was the final reason you made the change, the straw that broke the camel's back? What does your current existential framework offer you that your previous one did not? What does your current existential framework not offer you that your previous one did? For example, what did you miss? Mm. Mm. Those are questions we can all ask ourselves. It says, um, you know, for me, it makes me think about how many times in a church, um, Me being in there, I was, I was often hurt that by the fact that many people in church don't have a team. So many people go to church to speak in tongues, perform exorcisms, praise dance, the ha when they preach, the drum do 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 that you hear, and people lay out in the altar, fall out. But they go right back home to struggling on their own. Suffering on their own. Being rejected on their own. Being uncomfortable all on their own. Nobody to help them with housing, with employment, with entrepreneurship, with medical care, with education, with the fulfillment of their dreams, their short-term goals, long-term goals, their family life, their social life, their friendship life, their love life, their sex life, their healing from past traumas, their financial life, intellectual life, their psychological life, their academic life, their Cultural life, racial life, reproductive life, economic life, manic life. Some people struggle to put food on the table. They have clothes on their back, shoes on their feet. And this happens in church every week. It says, where they've come from, where they're going. After receiving open-ended responses, I went through notated themes, coding them to create quantitative results. Here's what I found about the faith traditions my respondents came from, how they identified today. After stripping out all respondents who did not have a faith origin of some flavor of Christianity, I had 1,050 responses left. Of those, here's the breakdown. 
So, um, Christianity Protestant was 60.15%. Christianity Specified was 15.5%. Christianity Catholic, 11.6%. Christianity LDS was about 10.6%. It said, after the respondents deconverted, existing central frameworks became far more diverse. So, wow. I'm sure I best read it. So, 31.2% was agnosticism, atheism. Um, then I noticed that 18.6% was about unknown, 10.2% Christian and specified, or maybe other, was 10.2%. Paganism was about 7.3%. And the 7.0% for each was about either um, spiritualism, paganism, universalism. And it says, it's important to note that while many are leaving the faith altogether, there are still people remaining in Christianity choosing a different denomination using language like Jesus follower rather than explicitly identifying as a Christian. I can relate. This type of individual makes up a little more than 10% of those surveyed. I think about how um, I think about this really deeply to myself. Um, I think evangelical is supposed to mean good news. But um The church allowed evangelicalism to be contaminated. And the same thing happened with the terminology Christian. This is what happens when wolves in sheep's clothing are allowed to traumatize those in the church and those outside of the church. This is LGBT quiet plus discrimination a big reason. But what about the bigger question, why? Andy Stanley, pastor of New North Point Ministries, one of the largest churches in the United States, wrote and spoke about this question. He believes some reasons include that the Bible contains contradictions, the Bible contains errors, that there's suffering in the world, bad church experiences, bad Christian experiences, and Christians can make church about a building rather than a genuine faith experience. While he did get a few reasons correct, I think Stanley would be surprised was ultimately motivating people to deconvert from traditional Christianity. 
Um, I recognize that when it comes to religion, and I said this many times, but I'm going to say it more. A lot of people are leaving church because there are Bible version fights, Bible translation fights, Bible transliteration fights. Um, There are actual Bible fights in terms of Bible interpretation fights. Um, Bible linguistics slash Bible language fights. They have Bible etymological fights and they have Bible commentary fights, Bible verse fights, Bible passages fights, Bible story fights, Bible character fights. They fight over anything and everything within the Bible and about the Bible of the Bible. So it could be, so the church is suffering from what I call theological confusion. Um, then there's more. Oh, wow. There's so many percentages, so I'll say this. Initial reason for leaving. 1.24% church history. 2.00% moral misalignment. 2.10% theological issues. 2.38% lack of relevance. Abuse slash hiding abuse, 2.57%. Civil rights, 2.67%. Us versus them, 2.995%. Mental health, 3.14%. Purity culture, 3.24%. Unanswered prayers, 3.33%. Feelings, 4.10%. Afterlife, 4.10%. Independence, 4.67%. Scriptural issues, 4.76%. Pain slash evil, 5.05%. Women's rights, 5.62%. Politics, 6.95%. Education, 6.95%. Faith leadership, 8.67%. Exposure to difference, 11.71%. Intellectual integrity, 12.10%. Behavior of believers, 16.10%. LGB, 21.71% when it comes to LGBTQ plus acceptance. Wow. Then it says, when it comes to the moment people first begin doubting their faith, LGBTQ plus acceptance is the most common reason. Followed by the behavior of Christians, then things not making sense on an intellectual level. An example of this would be, I couldn't reconcile how there could be an all-powerful, good-loving God and evil. Yes, a good number of my respondents were queer. Not being accepted by the congregations was a critical motive for leaving. However, the majority of respondents were straight and cisgender. Straight means heterosexual. And they ultimately started doubting Christianity when they were told they couldn't support their queer friends and family. Unable to rectify their love of LGBTQ plus people with the church, they chose LGBTQ plus acceptance. Some responses, I couldn't continue to ignore the mistreatment of LGBTQI plus and other marginalized people. 
I started doubting because of the way the church treated people in the LGBTQ plus community and anyone who didn't dress slash think slash act slash look slash vote like them. I couldn't understand why God would create LGBTQI plus people in a form my church claimed he hated. The first thing that challenged my viewpoint directly was meeting LGBTQI plus people and seeing that they were kind, thoughtful, and deserving of respect. The first thing was noticing how what Christians preach last practice didn't seem to align with that I knew to be the character of God, including views on the LGBTQ plus community, immigration, adoption, mental health issues, mission work, and just general treatment of others. I can relate. Um, I can definitely relate because I also understood that these are the same people that will exploit choir directors and musicians who are queer. I'll use you for your gift, publicly denounce you, but privately affirm you, and and throw out conservative theology on LGBTQ plus people, but it's only good for me to make money from these congregants because a lot of preachers preach for their congregations, which is also the same as preaching for money, which is also the same as never preaching for God. They, well, I'll preach what my congregation want to hear, not what God says they need to hear. So I'll preach against queer people. I'll preach against abortionists. And I'll preach against these transgenders. All because these are easy bank deposits in their bank accounts. Not because they truly value Christian moral excellence. And plus, a lot of, plus, there are LGBTQ plus people in pews, pulpits, and choir lofts, even within conservative theological Christian churches. They don't like to admit it. I'm admitting it for them. I don't give a damn how they feel about it. Then it says the behavior of Christians beyond the issue of LGBTQ plus inclusion. Stanley did get one thing right. Many people object to the behavior of Christians and that's not something new. Oh, I'm one of them. And I am unashamed and unabashed about that. When writing a letter to C.S. Lewis about potentially converting to Christianity, author Sheldon Benachkin wrestled with this exact thing in his book, A Severe Mercy. The best argument for Christianity is Christians, their joy, their certainty, their completeness. But the strongest argument against Christianity is also Christians, when they are somber and joyless, when they are self-righteous and smug and complacent consecration, when they are narrow and repressive, then Christianity dies a thousand deaths. Apparently, some things never change. The behavior of Christians is a massive stumbling block for people coming to the religion and walking away. However, instead of dying a thousand deaths, Christianity is dying millions. I dare say Christianity is dying billions. I say Christianity is dying trillions. Because let's visit a quote by, well, some quotes by Gandhi. Because what he said is relevant to how many people feel today. And this is not a blanket statement on all Christians, so don't give me that shit. 
There we go. It says, while Gandhi was a practicing Hindu, Christianity intrigued him. In his reading of the Gospels, Gandhi was impressed by Jesus and Christians worshiping following. He wanted to know more about this Jesus that Christians referred to as the Christ, the Messiah. The Reverend Pastor tells the following story. Tells the following story. One Sunday morning, Gandhi decided that he would visit one of the Christian churches in Calcutta. Upon seeking entrance to the church sanctuary, he was stopped at the door by the ushers. He was told he was not welcome, nor would he be permitted to attend this particular church as, as if it was for high ca- caste Indians and whites only. He was neither high caste nor was he white. Because of the rejection, the Mahatma turned his back on Christianity. With this act, Gandhi rejected the Christian faith, never again to consider the claims of Christ. He was turned off by the sin of segregation that was practiced by the church. It was due to this experience that Gandhi later declared, I'd be a Christian if it were not for the Christians. Likewise, the, pra- the practitioner of a religion doesn't always practice the religion the way it was originally taught. Mahatma Gandhi was one of the great spiritual and political leaders who made an enormous contribution to the moral resources of humankind, according to Arvind Katya, Hindu and an engineer. Oh, and there's more. This is Gandhi's letter about Christianity. He says, Gandhi tells, um, American Christian religious elder Milton Newberry, France. He said, Dear friend, I have your letter. I'm afraid it is not possible for me to subscribe to the creed you have sent me. The subscriber is made to believe that the highest manifestation of the unseen reality was Jesus Christ. In spite of all my efforts, I have not been able to feel the truth of that statement. I have not been able to move beyond the belief that Jesus was one of the great teachers of mankind. Do you not think that religious unity is to be had not by a mechanical subscription to a common creed, but by all respecting the creed of each? In my opinion, difference in creed there must be so long as there are different brains. But who does it matter if all these are hung upon the common thread of love and mutual esteem? Wait, there's even more. Mahatma Gandhi said, I like your Christ, but not your Christianity. Gandhi said, I believe in the teachings of Christ, 
but you on the other side of the world do not. I read the Bible faithfully and see little in Christendom that those who profess faith pretend to see. Then Gandhi said, the Christians above all others are seeking after wealth. Their aim is to be rich at the expense of their neighbors. They come among aliens to exploit them for their own good and cheat them to do so. Their propensity is far more essential to them than the life, liberty, and happiness of others. The Christians are the most warlike people. Remember, this is not a blanket statement of all Christians. Most Christians are serious about Jesus and please him extraordinarily well. Basically, Mahatma Gandhi had an equal respect for all religions. He had a spiritualized humanism. He said for him, all religions had equal status and were different parts and were different paths to the same goal of achieving union with the divine. And he said, I reject any religious doctrine that does not appeal to reason and is in conflict with morality. Um... He said, oh, I don't reject your Christ. I love your Christ. It is just that so many of you Christians are so unlike your Christ. are things to consider it says trump the last straw to better understand why people are leaving it's important to look at the final reason but the survey referred to as the last straw that broke the camel's back while much of the data remains the same it's important to note that one reason moved from seventh place to third politics So 24.76% LGBTQI+, baby believers 16.38%, 11.05% for politics, 8.57% for faith leadership, 7.24% intellectual integrity, 6.48% mental health, 6.38% independence, 6.38% women's rights, uh, 6.19% scriptural issues, 5.62% civil rights, 5.62% exposure to difference, 
pain, 4.76% abuse slash hiding abuse, 4.00% education, 3.81% theological issues, 3.71% church history, 3.24% us versus them, 2.57% purity culture, 2.38% feelings, 2.29% afterlife, 1.71% moral misalignments, 0.76% unanswered prayers, 0.48% lack of relevance. Wow. Final reasons for leaving. Wow. Um, for me, it's just um, what has happened in the church how does all this make me feel when I'm reading and telling y'all? Everything in the church is making me feel, or sh- it just makes me feel sad. It makes me feel unhappy. It makes me feel sorrowful, too. It says, for many respondents, politics is what finally motivates them to leave Christianity. Specifically, many reference the election of Donald Trump and support he received from the evangelical community. In fact, the name Trump was mentioned 81, per, 81 times in the survey. Responses is a key reason someone left Christianity. For example, there were some respondents' experiences. A culmination of events over the course of a few months started in December 2020. I had a fight with my father-in-law over the Confederate flag being a symbol of racism. He stopped speaking to me for months and it became a whole thing. The rise in glorifying Trump and fascism disguised as democracy. Seeing so many friends and family that claimed to love and follow Jesus pledged their allegiance to nationalism and Trump. The 2016 election. I wanted nothing to do with the group that supported Trump and his insane ideology under, under the pretense of faith. Trump was the last straw for me. Seeing a person who should be the opposite of what Christians are called to be being supported by evangelicals everywhere really woke me up to some harsh American slash conservative realities and how we've bastardized Christianity like others before to push not love or Christ, but instead Republican dogma steeped in racism, sexism, and greed with the Bible's manipulation tool to get people to conform to these particular ideals that have nothing to do with the Gospels. Mm. That's one of the reasons why I left church. I saw so much anti-democratic party sentiment when I was a college student, undergraduate in Leesburg, Florida, when I was at Beacon College. The Southern Baptist churches would make anti-Obama statements and pro-Tucker Carlson Fox News at the time type statements. I don't call Fox News Fox News. I just call them Fox. They're not a legit, they're an illegitimate quote-unquote news channel. They don't promote real news at all. I call them fake news, to keep it short. And it says, this is Catholic, um, they'll know we are Christians by our love. Ultimately, channeling those who follow his teachings are wrong. Christianity isn't losing followers because leaving is quote-unquote some sexy thing to do. It comes down to how people are being treated, specifically marginalized communities. These responses make me think of a tweet by Caitlin J. Stout, a lesbian Christian. A friend asked me the other day what percentage of people I went to youth group 
with deconstructing and what percentage remain evangelicals. I thought about it. I realized that for the most part, it was the kids who took their faith the most seriously who eventually walked away. Wow. I took Jesus. I take Jesus the most seriously. That's why I walked away from how religion described him. Mm. It's comforting to know that. It hurts, but it's more importantly comforting. Christianity is a religion that boasts about its love, but people are not seeing it and they're walking out the door. In the words of MSNBC's Joe Scarborough, the pews are emptying out. With this in mind, it's no wonder that loving and accepting people is the second most valuable quality people gain when they leave Christianity. I recently spoke with someone about my research, someone who's very much still in evangelicalism. When I showed him the results, the response was, it's not surprising since God's word warns us all about what will take place in the last days, but his remnant will hear and know the truth. So, here's the problem I have with that statement. That's misusing scripture. Actually, that person is projecting, oh, the last days you're talking about yourself. God's wrapping upon people, you're actually referring to you. Because God's wrath is not on the people leaving the church. God's wrath is on people who hypocrite and push people out of the church. Projection and deflection in that world are the logical fallacies that they abide by. So because of them, Jesus feels dejected. Jesus feels regretful, depressed, downcast because of them. They make Jesus feel all these ways. Mm. Then it says, He then quoted Jude chapter 1, verse 17 to 19, But you, beloved, remember what was foretold by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ when he said to you, The last times there will be scoffers who will fall after their own ungodly desires. Oh, the church is talking about itself. It's truly not talking about the people who experience Jesus outside of the church. These are the same people that caused Jesus to feel miserable, downhearted, down, despondent, despairing, disconsolate, out of sorts, desolate, wretched, glum, gloomy, doleful, dismal, blue, melancholy, melancholic, low-spirited, mournful, woeful, woe-be-gone, forlorn, crestfallen, brokenhearted, heartbroken, inconsolable, grief-stricken, and bowed down. They, they make Jesus feel all these feelings. They make Jesus feel pathetically inadequate or unfashionable. They make Jesus feeling or, show, or showing sorrow unhappy. Um, deep down, they believe, they meaning the religious hypocrites, secretly believe that Jesus is substandard, bad, deficient, defective, faulty, imperfect, inferior, mediocre, abject, appalling, abysmal, atrocious, awful, terrible, dismal, dreadful, unsatisfactory, low-grade, second-rate, third-rate, jerry-built, shoddy, crude, tinny, trashy, miserable, wretched, disappointing, lamentable, deplorable, horrible, pitiful, inadequate, terrible, insufficient, unacceptable, execrable, 
frightful, direful, egregious, below standard, and below par. These are their actual beliefs about Jesus, and they're pissed off at me because I'm exposing their hard-heartedness that they have against Jesus. It says, what's gained with new framework? 36.48% freedom. 22.48% love slash acceptance of others. Removal of guilt slash shame, 20.29%. Ambiguity slash openness slash curiosity, 16.95%. 16.86% self-acceptance and love. 16% self-determination, intellectual integrity, 11.89%. 10.86% 10.86% joy slash peace, 20.19% LGBTQ plus affirmation, 6.48% no fear of afterlife, 6.10% moral slash value alignment, 4.57% community, 4.29% appreciation respect of, 3.81% connection to nature, 3.81% appreciation of body slash sex slash emotions, 3.71% health, 3.62% Women's rights, 2.38% presentness, 1.81% social justice, 0.50% political alignment. This is all what's gained with new framework. It says freedom. These data didn't tell me people aren't leaving Christianity to live immoral lives. One more time. These data tell me people aren't leaving Christianity to live immoral lives. Yes, a few people mentioned they get to have premarital sex to do whatever they want. But that's not the main reason. Here's the thing. No one who, no one in their right minds is encouraging sexual recklessness. That's not why they're having premarital sex. What is being said is, is that They want to experience sensuality with whomever they're with without feeling like they're degrading themselves nor that person because in their minds, we're not warring against God. That's what's being said. It says, I marked freedom as a category anytime respondent specifically use the word freedom, but freedom is, is always attached to action. Freedom to live their own lives, freedom to have sex with whomever they want. And because many people want to experience healthy sex, I would say uh, rape survivors like me, we want to experience healthy sex the most. We want to experience it without being trauma triggered because we want to have sex free of psychological trauma. And it says, while these answers were present in the survey, they would have been assigned to three categories, freedom, self-determination, appreciation of body slash sex slash emotions. However, the vast majority of people connected freedom to love their words, the freedom to love and accept anyone, no strings, also as ministering attached. 
The openness to accept other people from other religions with open arms and an open mind. Freedom to love any and all people despite their background or sexual preferences. The ability to love people in a much more whole way. I don't have to pray for them and want them to change. And I don't have to judge them for the way they live. One of the teachings of our Bible is who the Son Jesus sets free is free indeed. Works really nice as a church song or devotional concept, but I realize when I open it up to the possibility that all are welcome, literally all with no exclusions, the queer community, women in positions of spiritualism, leadership, other religious traditions experience God too. There are no limits on God's presence and how that spirit moves among us. Then I knew it. That was freedom and love and grace and kindness and all the goodness of the God I've been told about. It was all still there, just truly, finally free. Wow. Mm. Of course, they're not saying no healthy boundaries. They're not saying no no accountability. They're not saying no responsibility. They're not saying, let's cause negative consequences to happen to all of us. They're not saying any of those things either. Then it says, the price we pay community. In most of these responses, there's a yearning to do better, to be better, to love better, but it seems like it's coming at a price and a steep one. The final question asks what people missed about Christianity. For many, it won't be a surprise that the number one thing respondents listed was community and by an overwhelming amount. What's missed from previous framework, 50.95% community, 14.19% music slash the arts, 8.86% certainty slash undefined, 6.86% nothing, 6.67% family, 6.67% free food, 6.10% certainty after life, 5.05% Certainty all will work out. 4.2% events. 4.00% connection to the divine. 3.52% structure. 3.24% religious superiority. 2.76% purpose. 2.67% um, certainty morality. 2.48% um, ritual slash practice slash tradition. 2.38% instruction slash development. 0.95% volunteering. Oh, my. And then it says, um, well, they talked about potlucks or shared worship experiences, peer and spiritual support, or even family. Leaving Christianity comes at a steep price when regarding community, as people feel deeply about. I miss the community. I don't have a single friend from my church days. It can get lonely. I, Antonio, feel that way sometimes. A local gathering of like-minded individuals to support you. The connection with other Christians in your involvement at church, slash camp, slash, etc. was a huge part of my life. Finding others who are in a similar position as you are de- uh, finding others who are in a similar position as you after deconstructing is like a breath of fresh air, but it's somewhat few and far between here and the Bible Belt. I, Antonio, feel that way sometimes. I don't really feel like I can share my beliefs with anyone else, and my husband being an atheist makes me feel uncomfortable doing any form of worship in my home, so I bottle it up all inside and just generally feel awkward and alone all the time. I feel that way sometimes. 
A close-knit group of similar-minded people. I think this is the reason so many stay in churches in that belief system. It's all their friends and social networking too hard and lonely to change. I feel that way sometimes. I really miss the sense of community that I got from Christian church. I was able to wrap most of my life up in whatever church I attended. I not only attended Sunday services. I was in the choir. I did BBS. I was in every youth group I could be. As a young autistic kid who had a hard time making friends, it was so much easier to bond with people over a shared love of God in the church. I feel that way sometimes. By the way, there are plenty of people outside the church who don't shame believers for being believers. Most people who are non-believers start out as believers so they begin. After several months of reading responses like this again and again, my heart still breaks. There's a deep yearning for love in all these people. It's the reason they leave Christianity. At times, it's what they gain, but also it's what they lost. Brandon Flannery, the author of this article, is talking about me. We as species need love and belonging. It's evident in every one of these answers. And while Christianity is experiencing exodus, it does offer some a level of satisfaction to these human yearnings. But at what cost ultimately for many, the cost is too high to pay. I'm still paying that too high of a cost. <sighs> Leaving church is not always fun. And I know exactly what the fuck I'm talking about. So, um... I just feel, um, this is how I feel. It says, the Bible doesn't set the moral bar very high. Religious Christians assert in nauseam that the Bible is the ultimate moral guide and that if we focus our society on biblical principles that we would achieve as close as possible perfect world. This is patent, you know... It does feel patently absurd sometimes for me. The Bible is not a wellspring of moral wisdom for each and every subject in life. It is rather somewhat crude, unlightened ideas of first century humans. First century humans, I feel that way sometimes. It's followers taken from churchestate.org. Let's face it, don't rape people, don't own people, don't hate people, don't hurt children. are kind of no brainers when it comes to morality. Our friend Jesus and his old man only apparently failed to make these things clear, but in many instances, they encouraged, condoned, or commanded them. Sure, Jesus said a few things about loving your neighbor and being kind of strangers, but he also said that not believing in him was the worst offense a person could commit and that anyone who didn't believe would burn in hell for all eternity. And seriously, the Ten Commandments is a basis for all morality. Checking out your neighbor's wife is worse than raping his daughter. Taking the Lord's name in vain is worse than owning slaves. Nice priority, sarcastically speaking. Add to this the fact that God himself does not follow his own rules to which Christians respond that they were that mere mortals cannot understand or judge morality of God. 
But the Bible defines morality, and God has a different set of rules for himself than for humans, and we are not allowed to know or understand his rules except that we are expected to do as he says, but not as he does. Then how exactly does that provide any kind of moral baseline whatsoever? The mean that the Bible is a suitable moral guide is like a virus that is spread from parent to child and to grandchild and so on. It doesn't contain any intrinsic truth, but nevertheless, it proliferates quite effectively from repetition and inculcation. It takes an open mind in the actual reading of the Bible for a person to conquer this virus, but once that's achieved, it proffers lifetime immunity. I can relate to these feelings because these are the feelings that I feel sometimes. The imagery of do as I say, not as I do, God. I see why the Pharisees in church rejoice in that imagery of God. Eight ways ableism shows up in religious spaces. I say again, eight ways ableism shows up in religious spaces. The church often speaks to the role of inclusion as foundational. However, people who experience disabilities are often forgotten, ignored, and sidelined by the institution and ministries. This, along with countless other means, is an example of ableism, discrimination and oppression against a person with a disability. As the church moves forward in its mission of full inclusion, we must be aware of how ableism presents itself in our religious spaces. Here are just eight ways ableism shows up in religious spaces. Number one, physical building. Churches and other religious gathering spaces often lack accessibility for people with disabilities. And if there are forms of accessibility present, they're usually located out of sight. Spaces in the back of churches, ramps over to the side, etc. Many times ableist ideals of aesthetic get in the way of full inclusion of people with disabilities, which can hurt, demean, and ostracize the person. How do we bring accessibility out in the open and create a new way of physically creating structures that provide hospitable space space for people with disabilities? Well, you have to remove the spiritual disability called bigotry out of your heart. The real disability is not the person's physical condition. It's the ableist is spiritual condition that's the real disability. What if God didn't have a problem with autism? What if God didn't have a problem with what people wrongly call disability? What if the real disability is a is discriminatory attitudes? Discriminatory practices that may be the real disabilities that the Bible may be talking about through God. Mm. Number two, language and rhetoric. Oh, God, allow us to see your kingdom. Hear us, God. Often in prayer, songs, sermons, even scripture, language of sense occurs. We experience metaphors of walking with Christ in comparison to discipleship and other examples of ableist language. This language through subtle creates, though this language, though subtle, creates exclusive spaces for people who may not be able to see, hear, walk, talk, etc. How do we change our language and rhetoric in religious spaces? So, 
it is okay to understand that change of language means there is a reasonable accommodation of compassion. And change of rhetoric rhetoric means the reasonable accommodation of empathy. And ultimately means the reasonable accommodation of God in people, especially those who are dispossessed by society, not by God. Number three, theology of burden carrying. Theological rhetoric that frames a person with a disability's experience in burden carrying creates unhealthy theologies. A person's disability may create obstacles, but that is because society has not accommodated and adjusted, like I said earlier. In what ways do we change burden carrying theology to heavy into healthy life giving theologies? Imagine if you were labeled disabled and think about the golden rule, the silver rule, and the platinum rule, and your heart will start shifting in God's direction, not in the direction of disability discrimination. Number four, tokenism. Tokenism is defined as the practice of making only a perfunctory or symbolic effort to do a particular thing, especially by recruiting a small number of people from underrepresented groups in order to give the appearance of equality within society. Churches and religious institutions must be aware that some people with disabilities often are tokenized in their communities. So don't go, well, that's, well, we're not ableist. We have uh, so, a couple of people with disabilities in our congregation. They come when they can. That's the racist equivalent of, I have black friends even though I'm white. That's the misogynistic equivalent of, I'm not sexist. I have women friends, even though I'm a male. Ugh. Number five, faith equals healing. There are stories in scripture that illustrate healing on the basis of faith. These stories are then turned into harmful theologies that tell people that if they have enough faith, they will be healed. This could lead to disappointment or trauma. How do we reorient our ideas of healing? Bethany McKinney's Fox's book, Disability in the Way of Justice, offers guidance on these conversations. Well, what if the person with Down syndrome doesn't need physical healing? What if God loves their Down syndrome just fine? What if ignoring the full humanity of the person with Down syndrome is what truly needs to be healed? Mm. Number six, lack of intersectionality. Many people with disabilities are seen only for their disability, not for their entire embodiment. Seeing a person's entirety brings about different perspectives. How do we really experience the full humanity of a person? Oh, it's simple. It's called open-mindedness to seeing that person through the lens of God not through the lens of society. <laughs> Number seven, demonization and slasher infantilization. All the times people with disabilities are treated as unhuman, inhumanely, or as children. Their person is demoted and his experience is less than and unable to contribute to society. Many times we see this in churches through interactions and even through pastoral care. What ways do churches dehumanize people with disabilities? How do we change these interactions? Well, for example, 
talking too slowly to a person, giggling and pointing at a person, mean mugging a person, not speaking to a person. You can't say that you're Christian and lack the eternal perspectives of God regarding people that are used to being abused. Number eight, charity instead of empowerment. Empowering people with disabilities is often overlooked by church. Instead, charity is often lived into. Simple handouts or financial gifts are good, but developing relationships and meeting people where they are is a start to empowerment. How do churches empower people with disabilities? And I have to tell this truth. Um, I've been in churches where they did not have special needs ministries. They did not have disability ministries. But some people with disabilities actually came through the doors of the church. How can you say you follow Jesus in middle finger the disenfranchised? Mm. Now you're learning more reasons why I don't go to church every weekend, every week. I want to say this, Jesus is about compassionate love, free choice for the other, some degree of accurate cognitive understanding of the situation other and oneself, valuing the other at a fundamental level, openness and receptivity, response of the heart. So Jesus is about compassionate love, self-love, unconditional love. Sacrificial love, companionate love, altruistic love, too. I want to say this as I close the episode. Um, Many people who claim to be about Jesus. Engage in police abuse, police brutality, police corruption. Especially against those who are not white. They engage in qualified immunity and chokeholds. Um, They throw false accusations around. And... They death penalty people who are not white the most. And they shoot down non-whites and get off scotch-free. They claim to follow a Jesus who said, live by the sword, die by the sword. But they value guns over God. Those are more reasons why I left church. As a five-year-old, I was forced to pimp, pander, procure, um, male madam, and be a brothel keeper of those who were doing webcam modeling, pornographic modeling, adult content, subscription services, strippers, naked butlers, pole dancing, 
Fun sex operators go go dancing, erotic dancing, near blessed twerking, strip tease, table dance, erotic massage, grinding, lap dancing, pornographic film, acting, peep show performers, escort services, girlfriend experience, boyfriend experience, sugar babying, sugaring, sexual surrogate, street prostitution, door prostitution, you know, brothel work, massage probably prostitution, bar casino prostitution, dominatrixes. I was that I was forced to manage all of these people as a five year old child. And these people are adults. And um, also, when uh, I, I, I was a child, I was forced To be a pimp, a procurer, a panderer, a brothel keeper, and a male madam of those who were doing can-can, cage dance, go-go dance, hoochie-coochie, mudra, exercise, striptease, out of dance, pole dance, bubble dance, fan dance, gown and glove, striptease, lap dance, couch dance, contact dance, and lap dance, dance of the seven veils, table dance, grinding, neo-burlesque, and twerking. I was forced to make money from all these people, including the ones who did exotic dances as well. And I'll, I'll, this will really be my closing statement. When I was a child, um, there were some women who owned nightlife spots. So... These were some organized crime bosses who they liked me so much they wanted me to be a co-owner with them. It was themselves and me. Um, so I, I was making money with them from pubs, bars, nightclubs, parties, live music, concerts, cabarets, theaters, cinemas, and shows. And I would be at all of these nightlife entertainment places I was with these night owls in these nightlife spots um I was and they would also make money from taverns and I remember being at these taverns with them and I would make money with them when it came to the taverns too and then um they had Sin City spots I remember making money with these women all the people I was making money with were just women. Women organized crime bosses, women crime bosses. So um, there were women who owned Sin City, Sin City spots. So I remember making money with them when it came to prostitution, strip clubs, sex shops, gambling casinos, betting shops, alcohol, marijuana, organized crime, gang activity, drugs, you know. These were organized crime bosses who owned all these spots. And they would have me make money with them. And I remember being at all these Sin City places where all these Sin City vices were happening. Happening and we and that's how we made money. 
Um, and then they had their own illegal red light districts that I remember making money with them in. They had me at these places, you know, sex-oriented businesses, adult theaters. Um, and then they had me make money with them at these sex industry places, you know, host and hostess clubs, sex-related pastimes, sex-oriented adult magazines, sex movies, sex toys, and fetish obedience and paraphernalia. You know, that's how they would, and they would make money from adult movie theaters and peep shows with me. And they owned, like, adult service providers, adult sex providers, so um, I would make money with them in these ways. So these were all the kinds of people that were in my life at that time. And somehow... They would make money from sex channels for television, prepaid sex movies for video on demand. And they would give me a cut of the money that they would sell these things to to anybody who wanted to buy it. And I just remember seeing these things. They would make money from, you know, illegal sex museums they created and give me a cut of the money. I was five. And I remember... uh, at the time, you know, adult sex tourism, the ones between adults only and the ones that involve children, and they'll give me a cut of the money. Um, what happened to these women crime bosses? Some jail, some got murdered. Especially when it was found out that they were making money with a child, me, and um, they were making money from adult sex tourism that included children. That's how they they got killed, and that's how the rest went to prison. And uh, these are just things I remember throughout these times in my life. Six to 12 months was how I was in organized crime, so, um, thanks for letting me fucking share.